Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner and our special guest is a student of ours, Alex Gyrick. Now, Phil, we usually go into coffee and we talk about what's going on here today. I think something uh, more profound uh, is necessary for this episode. We're going to go right into it. Um, so today, it's an honor for us to present the uh, the memory and the life and the story of one of Canada Harry's fallen heroes, John Steglin III. And it's, you know, the, the whole idea behind our, our podcast is to present history's unknown stories. And being in little town, Kanajahari, uh, central New York, I think sometimes some of the hometown heroes, as we kick off hometown history, the segment of our of our podcast, uh, gets forgotten. So we want to highlight someone who has given their entire life over uh, to their country, to their town, to their family. And we want to do that in this episode of John Steglin III. So Alex, um, your, your great uncle is John Steglin III. Uh, the title is Four Rows Down, Three Names Over, which we will talk about a little bit later. Now, just for the listeners, here's a little heads up. Today's episode is pretty different because in other episodes we've recorded uh, on a live mic. This is actually um, recorded live back in April, and you presented this to us as an idea. Hey, is there any way we're talking about Vietnam in, in uh, global studies in class? Is there any way we could take some some time during class and present um, what, what went on in my family's life and my great uncle's life of John Stegman III. So we actually have recordings, listeners, of what Alex did for us in our class uh, that we're going to share with you guys later in, in today's episode. Uh, but first of all, it's an honor for us, and thank you for presenting us this story, and let's kick it off. Yeah, and to build off of that, Phil, you know, having been somebody who ultimately I've spent my entire life in Canada Harry. You know, I grew up here. I went to high school here. I came back to teach here. This is my 21st year I'm wrapping up. You know, I'm, I'm certainly familiar with the name John Steglin III. So having Alex in class and initiate the project that she did, and this has really been months, you know, in the works here, right? Um, was very, very meaningful to me as well. Because, you know, as somebody who would hear his name in memorial services, Memorial Day, festivities, you felt a connection to him, even though I didn't obviously know him personally. But to hear you talk about him, because you do have that personal connection to him, I really think has has been very rewarding for me personally. I think the students and, and the peers that you presented this to felt the same way. There was a connection here. And we talked about so many different things before we actually started recording. And we even said, I hope all of this makes its way in here. I wish we were recording right now. But Alex, you you prompted this, and I think that's a good place to get started. And I think that's a, an important thing to, to continually emphasize. You came to us and said, listen, I have this idea. 
I want to delve deeper into my family's history and learn more about this great uncle who made this great sacrifice. So what prompted you to kind of begin that journey? I didn't really know Johnny very well. I didn't know his story overall, Mm -hmm. but I knew small bits about him from like stories that my grandmother would tell, but it wasn't, you know, the entire story of Johnny Stegland. You know, when I hear about your uncle who died in Vietnam right now, right. Thanksgiving dinner, uh, wasn't <clears throat> not really like that. But I, it was really the memorial wall, the Vietnam traveling wall that went to FM. My uncles had brought out his medals mm-hmm. and I had seen them. I was like, oh, I've never seen these before. These are so cool. God, he, he did things. He was in the service. He was an amazing guy. So it was really that, and I wanted to show other kids that because, you know, not many people outside of families go right. to the traveling wall. Not many people outside of families know, you know, soldiers mm-hmm. in the Vietnam War. So it was really just sharing it with people who would be interested in it. Because I know our classes, we have a lot of history buffs right. in our classes. Right. So I wanted to show that to them. Good. And, and you know, I as we get farther and farther away, I mean, it's 2022 from the Vietnam War. And, you know, we talk about this with regards to World War II Mm -hmm. and how veterans are being lost. But the the idea of Vietnam, I mean, it's it wasn't just yesterday in the scope of history. We're getting away from it. And I think it's to talk about John the way you did resonated with the students that you were speaking with, because John really, I think, for for me, epitomized what I conceptualize to be the story of most Vietnam veterans a young guy from a small town, a ball player who goes off to a faraway land on the other side of the world to fight for his country. And I I, I just feel like that there's a lot encapsulated in his story Mm -hmm. that anyone who has a relative who fought in Vietnam might be able to relate to. But to look at your peers who were on the baseball team, who were maybe a few years younger than John when he, you know, was, was on his way to Vietnam, I think it got them thinking in a different way than they would have if it was Mr. Schaff and myself sitting in front of them talking about or talking to them about the Vietnam War. Yeah. And you did, I think, a phenomenal job as the listeners at home will, will I'm sure, agree once they listen to the uh, recording um, of honoring your uncle. And I think one of the things that, that we forget, too, because of all the things that happened in Vietnam, you know, I had relatives that served uh, and, and it was only a uh, until fairly recently, they started opening up and talking about it. So it's it's awesome to see someone as young as yourself be the voice of those who can't really relay what they went through. And you did a great job. What 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 better way than do it through, you know, primary sources that you have? And your family did a phenomenal job of keeping all those things, um, even down to some of the reels, you know, and the old fashioned uh, projectors that that you could you could see pictures of, which by the way are incredibly vivid. Um, but I think you just did a, an absolutely fantastic job of honoring your family uh, and the sacrifices your family made in that war. Now, can you talk to us a little bit, Alex, about obviously your family is going to play an integral part of, of your research and your project. Um, and, and Phil and I are blessed to, to be friends with your, your grandmother, Nancy, <laughs> and we've known her for, for several years now. But talk to us a little bit about what role did your family play in the research and, and what sort of feelings... Um, did they have when you told them that this was what you were working for? Yeah. Um, 
I, I went to my grandmother right after you said, yeah, you can do, you can do the a little thing. And I mean, it kind of evolved from a little thing in front of your class since then. But I told my grandmother, I was like, hey, can you tell me about the, the medals? Because like to me, at the very beginning, that was like the most important part to me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, who cares about that? Do you want to hear like the entire smeal? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> she was so open about everything that she told me. And it was kind of crazy thinking like, you know, she lost a brother, but she was still, you know, she told me everything. And I called my uncle Mick, who was also, you know, his brother. And he told me everything that he knew and like how it was and even what it was like for him, you know, mm-hmm. growing up, uh, living through the Vietnam War. So, yeah. And they definitely told me pretty early on that it wasn't necessarily that they were proud of him for dying. They were they were still sad. I mean, right. he was murdered in a war mm-hmm. across the ocean. Yeah. So, you know, to me, that was uh, amazing for them to have shared that with me. And I think um, and, and we're, uh, the next question makes sense because it's, it's kind of where Alex is already taking this discussion, which I think is great. Is just what sort of feelings did it kind of maybe renew in your family members? Because you mentioned, you know, Nick and Andy and obviously, uh, you know, your grandmother. But, you know, we discussed the idea that they were the only ones who really knew him, knew him, knew him. And, you know, here we are talking about him and it's so obvious. And and the listeners, I think, can hear it in your voice, too. And they're definitely going to be able to hear it in your presentation. But you, generations later, have this very strong connection to your great uncle by doing the research, which I think is amazing. Right. But what sort of feelings did your family did maybe kind of bring up? Did it resurface? Right. It was, it was like, it was all flooding back to them. I think I can see it. I could see it in their faces. And like when I, unfortunately, my uncle Mick lives in North Carolina. So we called him, but it was like, he would be like, oh, oh, and this, and this, and this, and this. And just, it was just coming back to them. Mm -hmm. And it was really nice to see them like starting to remember things and you know see it on their faces like they're very happy to talk about him they remember things about him uh you know definitely stories that even i won't know Mm -hmm. because you don't necessarily want to tell your granddaughter that right but um you know yeah and then i talked to my mother about it and she uh she definitely has a different feeling than i do and what my grandma grandmother does she saw like the aftermath of Johnny. She didn't get to meet him. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she was uh, younger, but uh, she saw what her grandparents went through. Johnny's parents went through dealing with his death. I rem- she told me that she, uh, her grandmother would purposely not buy anything that was made in Vietnam, mm. which I don't know how many things were made in Vietnam <laughs> in America, but you know, she would purposely do that and you know I was born after my great-grandparents died and um so I didn't get to you know meet them or talk Mm -hmm. to them about them that or see what their reactions to this was so it was kind of even more detached feeling from that at the when I was younger I felt bad for my grandmother like I felt sad for my grandmother who had lost a brother I've you know I didn't want her to feel that pain I didn't really know Johnny so I didn't really necessarily feel mournful for losing him until I did this project. Mm. Um, 
as you mentioned earlier, all the slides and stuff, right. the pictures that are in a handheld projector, um, there are boxes and boxes and boxes, probably over a hundred pictures that I went through as soon as I had got them um, that my grandmother had given me <clears throat> to go through. Uh, and just going through them and seeing all his friends and seeing the things that he decided were worthy enough to take a picture to send back home and reading these letters that he had written. It was, it was like, I was learning more about him. Right. Right. So that it definitely, it started like almost allowed me to feel mournful for losing him. Wow. That's very well that's, said. And, you know, yeah. we, we've, we've tried to express this to your family and we'll, we will right now too. They've been so candid and, and great about this, about a topic that is very, very personal to their family, but to allow you to do this project and allow to give us insight as to what their family went through. Um, we, we are forever grateful because it is going to be a story. I think that that touches a lot of people. It's a story that I think will help his legacy move on and live on. And it just, um, it was a great experience, I think, for everybody. Mm -hmm. And and now to incorporate that into the podcast and, and reach a, a far-reaching audience, I think is is amazing as well. I, I got I to highlight a couple of things that you said, too. Um, to bring out that, that mournful side of you, I think that's lost in technology today. I think that's lost in, you know, we, we, the lack of face-to-face -face contact, the lack of maybe getting deeper into topics rather than, than just to a five minute clip or, you know, five second clip, even on some social media, you, you went deep enough, um, emotionally, uh, historically, uh, even with your family that you, you got into something that I think is lost. And that's the, the empathy that we need for people who have been through, you know, some tragic events, including wartime. And I also noticed something that when you talk to us personally, obviously off record, and you, you've shown us hundreds of things that you have you always called him Johnny. And I think, I think that's very telling mm -hmm. because it, it, it was something that maybe you started off this thing as like, Oh, Vietnam, where have I heard Vietnam before? Oh, we're learning Vietnam and global, but wait, Vietnam, wait, my uncle John. Mm -hmm. And then it went to, Hey, I got to show you that something that my uncle John did. And then, and then towards the end of this project, you, you started saying, Hey, Johnny did this. Johnny did that. Johnny, you got to see what Johnny did. So it, it was awesome because we, we said this before we started recording that you have an attachment to someone you've never met now. Yeah. That's, that's really profound. Um, and as we've said before, for someone your age, you're only what? 15. You're only 15. So to capture that is something that I think uh, you could show your kids someday, because hopefully this, mm. this is going to be permanently installed somewhere. Um on the, the internet somewhere. So you can, you can show your kids this. Uh, I think that's, that honors not only Johnny, but your entire family. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as, as we get ready to segue into, to Alex's presentation, and I think uh, I'll say it again. I think the, the, the listeners are going to really appreciate this episode. Um, I think it's only fitting Alex. We're going to give you the last word. So the presentation from start to finish is about to follow, you know, kind of our, our introduction here. Somebody who's completely, um, you know, disconnected from Canada, Harry, maybe even the Vietnam War, your great uncle. What do you want them to be aware of? What's what's the last word you want to give before they get to hear the presentation that you presented to our school? 
Well, I think it's really who he was before he got to Vietnam or to Australia. Um, you know, he was number one baseball player. He, you know, grew up in a small town, but mainly f- for my grandmother, because she's the only real person that I talked to about to find out who he was. She said, like, he was the coolest older brother. She would let us, <laughs> He would let us get away with anything. He was... She told me, actually, after the presentation, she said, um, back before one of the Christmases, back when I was younger, uh, he we he went up to the basement and he grabbed all of our presents that our parents had tried to hide from us. And <laughs> he had brought them down, brought it to each of us. He's like, oh, this one's for Mick. This one's for Andy. Nancy, here's yours. So it was things like that. He was just definitely a cooler, older brother and good friend to almost everyone in Kanjahari. I don't think I've met anyone who doesn't like him. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, that's a great segue. Alex, thank you for presenting us. And listeners, here we are with Four Rows Down, Three Names Over by Alex Skyrick. Vietnam Veteran Memorial. Okay. Listen, there are 58,318 names listed on the wall, 58,318. There are three from Kanajahari. If you were to kind of loop your way around the staircase here in the atrium, Floyd Hotailing third, uh, Jackson Feinling, and John Steglin third are the three names from Kanajahari who are also on that wall in, Viet- uh, in Washington, D.C., the Vietnam Veteran Memorial. So to say a number like 58,000 plus, each one of them, a son, a brother, a cousin, a neighbor, an uncle, a community member, that's pretty powerful. And each one of them has a background, a story that goes along with them, that they took to Vietnam. And we're kind of in a unique situation here. We have somebody who's going to give us insight, direct insight into one of those three names. Okay, so great thing for a Friday. It works perfectly into what Mr. Schaff and I have been going over with you guys with the Cold War in Vietnam. I'm going to stop talking. Alex, if there's anything you need, let us know. Hand it over to you. Hi. So the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces allow us to enjoy all the freedoms of our great country. But with that being said, the family of John Steglin is allowing this presentation strictly for the purpose of learning a bit of the life of a Navy seaman. They are not glorifying giving your life for your country, the military, or war. John's death was a senseless act. This is not a presentation on the Vietnam War. It is the telling of the community of Kanjahari during the war and the military life of John Joseph Steglin. Out of 2,709,918 U.S. soldiers who served in the Vietnam War, roughly 58,000 died. Out of the 58,000, two lived in Kanjahari, New York. The first was Floyd Hotelling III, and the second was my great uncle, John Steglin III. John, who everyone called Johnny, was born in New York City, but shortly after moved to Kanjahari. He was the oldest of four children. He ran for cross country and played on the baseball team for Kanjahari High School. Even long after he passed, people remembered him as being a good man. Johnny graduated high school in June of 1968 at the age of 17. Later that summer, he went to Delhi College, still at 17. After one semester, he realized that he hated college. He decided to enlist into the Navy, but because he was only 17, 
He needed his father to give him permission and needed his written consent. This is a picture of where Johnny went for basic training. He went to basic training in Great Lakes, Illinois. No one at the base was allowed to make phone calls to home, so the, so the base would send radio messages to a ham operator who would, set, who would call the family of the soldier. So when Johnny arrived at basic training, someone sent a, ham, a message to a ham operator who called my great-grandparents to tell them that Johnny had arrived safely. Swimming was a part of his training, and because he went to Kanjahari, he learned how to swim at school. There were over 100 people there, and he was one of the handful who could swim. After his basic training, he went to Bainbridge, Maryland for Naval Radio Specialist training. He went to Bainbridge for about three months. Before he could receive any classified information, he would have to go through double clearance security. This might sound a bit odd, but you have to keep in mind he was still a teenager at the time. He wasn't any older than the seniors at our school, and yet he was given important information about the ongoing war. It, was, it is doubtful that any of us will ever be given such a big and important responsibility at that age. On his weekends off, he would put on his naval uniform and hitchhike until he was close to Kanjahari. Then he would change into normal clothes before he got into town. He told his family that more people would give him a ride if he wore his uniform. Today, Bainbridge, Maryland Naval Radio Specialist School no longer exists. It was deactivated for the second time in 1976. This means the school was not used, but the government still owned it and maintained the building. Later, the school was sold to private parties. After his radio training in Maryland, Johnny was sent to Harold E. Holt Naval Communications Base in Exmouth, Australia. He, wor he worked as a radio specialist. Exmouth was a communications base because of its perfect location. From there, one person could give the radio operator information and that operator would send the information to whoever needed it without being in immediate danger. Radio was one of the only ways of communication for the military during the war. This was a picture of the view from the base from the road that leads to a beach that Johnny took. This building that looks like it belongs in Epcot was used for satellite communications. It has a nylon coating on the outside to protect it from weather. This is a message center, the building where Johnny worked. This is the administration building. Personal rec No, it's not. Sorry. This is the message center where Johnny worked. This one is the administration building. Personal records were kept here. This was the basis church. This was one of this was the number one enlisted men's barracks. Johnny's room was on the ground floor on the right-hand side. He said that there were three barracks altogether. He shared a room with one other person. They both had their own closet and, they, and there were bunk beds in the rooms. Here's a picture of the closets. He and his friends would hang out in each other's rooms. He definitely had a lot of fun in Australia.
Johnny told my family many stories about the things he saw and did in Australia. When he and, a fr he and his friends weren't working, they were doing things like going into the outback and camping on the beaches of the Cape. He saw things like anthills as tall as he was and kangaroos that lived in the fields. He owned a motorcycle and he, is, he and his friends would bring it to the beach. Sometimes when they were at the beach, they would ride sea turtles. In a letter he wrote, he explained how hard it was to get the turtles to cooperate. He and his friends would ride these sea turtles in the shallows of the ocean. Riding sea turtles is definitely not a common thing people do anymore. It's actually illegal to even touch wild sea turtles in Australia and the US. In Exmouth, Johnny played for a softball and volleyball team. They would travel to cities and play against other teams. They went to places like Sydney, Australia and Christchurch, New Zealand. In a letter one of Johnny's friends wrote to my great grandparents, he said that Johnny was the best ball player on the base. While he was in Australia, Johnny took a lot of pictures. He took pictures of everything, pictures of the base, his friends, the beach, his room, himself, and cool animals like this one. This is a ginormous spider that he found. He said that the web was six feet wide and it was thick like string. The spider itself was about three inches big. Here's, here's a picture of the caves he and his friends went to in Australia. Johnny would put these pictures onto slides. The slides would be put onto hand-sized projector so you could see the pictures in great detail. It's amazing how good the quality of these pictures are, considering they were taken in the late 60s and early 70s. He sent several dozens of these pictures, and I've looked at every single one that we could find. He would write letters explaining the slides. In every letter, there were a few slides that he didn't want anyone else to see, usually ones where he looked very bad. In one of the first letters he wrote to our family, he said, you have to promise that you won't show anyone outside of the family these pictures. At the end of almost every letter, he would write something along the lines of, I'm so sorry for the terrible pictures. I promise I'll take better ones someday. But he really did take incredible pictures. Almost all the photos in this presentation were taken by him or his friends. After reading about a dozen of these letters, I started to see why everyone liked him so much. He was so funny. I could feel his humor in his writing. He didn't only send letters and pictures. He also sent recordings of himself on, on cassette tapes and a few souvenirs from Australia. He brought a stuffed koala bear home. It was made out of real kangaroo fur. Johnny went home shortly, shortly before being sent to his next location. In 1970, Johnny was sent to California, but he didn't spend much time there. He decided to switch spots with someone who was going to Vietnam. He said he did this because he would get out six months earlier than if he stayed in California. So he was sent to Kinan, Vietnam, where he was going to serve for a year and a half. While all this was happening, back home, the Vietnam War was the only thing the news would talk about for years. Every night, the soldiers who had died were announced. The war got so much media attention, it was everywhere. This was the first war where people could see real footage in Vietnam. This was part of the reason why almost everyone was against the war. My grandmother told my brother and I that we would never understand what it was like growing up during the Vietnam War. 
until COVID-19 hit America. She explained to us that the war got the same amount of attention as COVID. This is a picture of Johnny's younger siblings. The girl on the left is my grandmother, Nancy. Next to her is their youngest brother, Andy. And to the right of Andy is Mick, the second oldest. When Johnny got to Kenan, he was given a Vietnamese courtesy phrases book. This book had some simple Vietnamese words and phrases so people could talk to South Vietnamese if they needed to. This slide says, this Vietnamese language phrase book is produced by the Navy Personal Response Project Office. Learning a few Vietnamese phrases contained herein is the first step in a suggested individual action program for Navy men. Number one, learn 30 Vietnamese phrases. Number two, meet one Vietnamese as a person. Discuss problems with this Vietnamese person. And number four, teach them English. Chani told my family that he didn't like Vietnam nearly as much as he had like Australia. Vietnam didn't have some of the things he loved like baseball or volleyball teams. So these are some of the words and illustrations that were in the book. During the Christmas season of 1971, there was a campaign to bring the boys home for Christmas. Johnny was one of the men who could go home. When his parents told him the news, he said he didn't want to come home. So my great-grandmother wrote a letter to the man who was running the event. She wrote, Dear Mr. Mr. McNamara, Unfortunately, I must write and ask you to take our son's name off the list of servicemen's holiday leave. He feels as if he comes home, he might not go back. His tour of duty will be over in May, and he will be out of the service. We'll have to wait till then to see him. Congratulations to you for starting the service men's holiday leave in Montgomery County. We think it's wonderful. Enclosed is a check for the project. Again, thank you so much. Sincerely, Mrs. John Stegland. On April 20th, 1972, just three weeks before his tour would have ended, Johnny died at the age of 21. He was killed through hostile action, more specifically a bombing of an artillery rocket mortar. He had been in Kenan for 11 months. That day, two Navy men went to my family's home, home and told them Johnny had died. Johnny had wished to be buried in the Kanjahari Falls Cemetery, where he and his friends would play in the creek along the edge of the graveyard. His body had to be escorted back to America by a Navy man, and my great-grandfather requested that this person was someone that they knew. By his request, Johnny's body was escorted back to America by a family friend, William Drinkwater. Hundreds of people attended Johnny's funeral. High schoolers were allowed to take the day off to attend the service. There were so many people that went to the funeral, crowds of people were pouring out of the church doors and onto the streets. Not everyone who went to the service knew Johnny or my family very well, but these were the kinds of things you did when someone in your town died in the war. You went to show your respect to a soldier and to support the family who had lost a loved one.
all the businesses in town dimmed their lights out of respect as the service was being held. My grandmother, Nancy Fenno, remembered there being many reporters at the funeral taking pictures for newspapers. She said they took pictures of what should have been a private moment. These people didn't even tell my parents that they were writing articles about Johnny. Today, Johnny is buried next to his parents at the Kanjai Harry Cemetery. During his service, Johnny was awarded these medals. The first medal is the National Defense Service Medal, given to people who have served during specific times of armed conflict or national emergency. <clears throat> the next medal is the Purple Heart Medal, a word to those who have been injured or killed while serving. Next to this is the Vietnam Service Medal, a word to those who have served in the Vietnam War as long as they met the award requirements. The medal on the bottom left is the Republic of Vietnam Campaign Medal and was awarded to those who served in South Vietnam for six or more months. The last medal is the Conspicuous Service Cross Award to those, awarded to those who lived in New York and served under honorable conditions. After his death, Johnny had memorials in, made for him. He had a maple tree dedicated in his honor not long after he passed. This tree was planted in the front lawn of the fourth and fifth grade wing at the East Hill Elementary School. There is also a plaque that commemorates all the soldiers who had died in World War II and the Vietnam War. This plaque is outside the school store facing the atrium. His name is also on the Vietnam Wall with all of the other fallen soldiers of the war. If you ever get a chance to see the memorial, try to find his name. If you look at the line that is formed where the two sides of the wall meet, look to the left of the line. Go four rows down and three names over. That's where he'll be. I would like to say a few thank yous before we move on to questions. Thank you, Mr. Horner and Mr. Schaff for encouraging me to do this. I've learned so much from doing this presentation. Writing this has made me feel, writing this had made me feel a better understanding of my family. Another thank you to my grandfather for helping me get all these pictures digitized. I hope everyone enjoyed the pictures as much as I do. Thank you to all of those, all of you who have listened to this presentation. It was very interesting to write, and I'm glad I got to share this story with you. And my final thank yous goes to my grandmother, Nancy, and my great uncles, Mick and Andy. They're the ones who told me everything that is in this paper and more. Because of you, all of us know who John Steglin was. Now, if there are any questions, Mr. Horner and Mr. Schaff and I will answer them. Almost, ex with the exceptions of the pictures of his basic training in Great Lakes, Illinois, and Bainbridge, Maryland, 
all the rest were taken by him or his friends. Um, yeah, we have all of them with us. My great uncle Mick had a lot of them <laughs> saved away um, and he sent them up in New York in time for this presentation. For me, what was weird is like, you look at him and he looks like your typical baseball player out of Canterbury High School. You know what I mean? Like I got baseball players sitting around me and think to myself, like you, you could take him out of that time period, put him in Canada, Harry, he looked, and to think like he was going through all these things that we talk about and see in documentaries and read about, but he's familiar with our local area. He was a Canjo kid. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you, you mentioned the falls, you meant like all these different references he was familiar with too. And obviously the name Steckland, I mean, it's, it's, it's in our area. We, we talk about being a small community, but for him, he's in that area of the world. He's experiencing all these things and he's from our town. It just, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's just cool to think that he, he was representing us. He was representing his family, mm -hmm. but he represented us. He just, he looks like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Athletic build. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Smith. So when Johnny had died, my, the Mick was 16, my grandmother was 13, and Andy was 12. So they do have um, some differences, but if there were any, I just chose something that they both agreed on. Uh, it, it's not very, like, extremely different, but the point of views of how they view it is obviously going to be different from person to person you know, how they feel about it, uh, everything that happened, so. How much did you know about him prior to doing your research? Very little. Um, it, it's not that we don't talk about him. Right. It's just I never really asked before now. He, I didn't know that he was in, a, in Vietnam. All I, know, all I knew was that he was in Australia because I saw the picture of the anthill that we unfortunately could not find. Very disappointed about that, but. Um, all I knew was that he died in Vietnam and that we were all very sad. And I was sad for my family to have lost uh, a brother. Yeah. Over the last two seasons, we've enjoyed bringing unknown stories from history to you every weekend. Now it's your turn to bring a story to us. Every town in every corner of the world has a story, and its history is our history. Tell us the story about your hometown and what makes it special or unique. We're calling it Hometown History. Who or what is your town known for? Tell us your hometown story either in an email or a voice message from our Facebook page. Phil and I will choose one hometown's history to research and profile in a full episode of Season 3 of The Missing Chapter. And we'll contact you to be a part of it. Every hometown has a story. The next chapter we add to the history textbooks could be yours. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. 
all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And again, we, we put you on the spot here. You did a great job. You answered questions. You did all this. I mean, it's very personal information you're sharing. So you did a fantastic job. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Everybody, anybody else have questions? We're good. Okay, we, we have plenty of time. 10, 10 20 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Um, one of the, some of the pictures, because we love our primary sources, you know what I mean? Mm. I loved the pieces that you had directly from Vietnam, specifically the one where it says, you know, you need those four steps, meet a Vietnamese person. I guess my question is, after learning what we know about Vietnam, the interactions our soldiers had with the Vietnamese, with the VC, with, you know, the South Vietnamese, some of our allies, as well as the interactions they've had when they came back home, why do you think it was so important that they follow those four steps once they were in Vietnam. You have to, you have to be friends with your allies, or else you're not going to trust them. You know, they're everything about our two cultures are different, and so I think understanding other people so that you can fight towards a common goal is, you know, very important. It also makes you realize too that it's not just the person fighting the war; the experience the family had to share it. I mean, and it continues to. Like, it's the family who takes that burden on, too, of the whole experience, and not just the individual. Yeah. You do a nice job carrying out his legacy, though, I think. Thank you. What else? A picture, something that stood out to you. The sea turtles? There we go, say it Yeah, we, uh, we had to ask a, a friend of my mother's to... Uh, get those digitized and we were hoping that they would get be in in time so luckily they were yeah it's it was kind of shocking to after being in social studies and you know seeing all the footage and then doing this presentation and be like well well he had he had a motorcycle he rode sea turtles that, that was the difference between Australia and Vietnam. Was he in Australia for downtime? Like he would be, when, when was he, or why was he sent to Australia? Just for communications. He was a radio oh. specialist. Right. He, uh, he was there for roughly a year. Hey, guys, I want, I want to jump in here, too, because Mr. Mr. Smith told us privately a story about, about John. Uh, I think he really needs to share. I think it's a really profound story. Not at all. So um, this summer, I was teaching summer school, and I was teaching government economics over the internet. And I was teaching kids from Gloversville, Amsterdam, Johnstown, no, no canto kids, but I was teaching them. So I decided I was going to go, I was actually going to go on vacation and teach from my vacation spot, but my sister lives in Washington, D.C. So I was in Arlington, uh, she lived at her house, and I decided I was going to get up in the morning, take her car, and shove a bicycle in the back of the car, and teach my government class from my phone in D.C. 
So I drove eight o'clock in the morning on my bike. I go up to Arlington Cemetery. I stand on the top of the hill that overlooking Washington. I say, good morning, kids. They're talking to my phone. I turn around and show them Washington. So I took them to the Cheju Guard and did all this different stuff and took them on the to Washington tour. They're all kind of hanging, probably playing video games, but I'm talking on the phone, you know. So I finally, I get on my bike. I said, I'll see you in a little bit. I rode and I go to the um, Lincoln Memorial. And right in front of the Lincoln Memorial is the, the uh, uh, Vietnam Memorial. So I'm walking along, I'm talking on my phone. So I'm walking along like this, and I'm talking on my phone like this, and I'm kind of whispering because you're, it's kind of a hallowed place. You know, I'm whispering, and there's these two people standing down there, there's a ladder. And this, I'm walking like this and talking, and they go, can we help you? And I said, no, I'm actually teaching a class right now. And I kind of turn my camera, and they go, oh, we're, we're school teachers too. We're retired school teachers. I go, oh, really? Yeah, and I said, here, say hi to my kids. And they're all talking to them. And I, they said, can we help you at all? I said, well, I, I don't know this person. I know of this person. There's a person up on the wall. His name's John Stegler. I know exactly where it is because I've done this before. And I've been in there many times, scrape, rubbing it. I've probably done it four times, five times. So the man goes, sure, I'll do it for you. So he, he gets up on the ladder. He climbs up there. And it's tall, so you can't reach it. So you have to get up on the ladder. And it's up top. And it's very easy to find. Right on the point, you go down, like she said, down three over, down four over two, whatever. And there he is. So the guy gets up there, he's rubbing this thing. In the meantime, I'm taking my video like this and talking to kids. And the other teacher's woman, she's talking to me, or telling her where she's from. And the guy's sitting up there rubbing. And it was this hot, like summer, uh, sweaty kind of Washington day. It was dead, like no, no wind. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, the wind picks up and it blows this thing out of this guy's hand. And he's sitting there rubbing it. And it goes like this, and it goes over the top of the wall. And the woman looks at me and she goes, did you get that on video? And I said, I think so. I'm not, I, did, I didn't, but I think I did because I, I wasn't taping it. And so sure enough, it flies over the top of the wall and the guy has to get another paper and he gets somebody rubs it off. But it's kind of one of those powerful moments, you know, where you have these things like that. I've always believed in spiritualness and that there was kind of this moment where, the, you know, he was kind of recognizing that we were there and recognizing him. And I, and I spoke, to, of course, Nancy is my friend and I spoke to her and it was kind of a, one of those moments where we kind of like, he was sort of his, his, his presence was, was felt. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Um, we have a few minutes. If there are any other questions, we can just uh, we'll let you guys relax a little bit. Uh, we'll let Alex relax. A bit. But, but thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Anything else, guys? Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horinder. And I'm Alex Garrick. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. 